0: All right, we'll begin in Job twenty eight, twelve through twenty eight. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, It is not in me, and the sea says, It is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of ophir and precious onyx or sapphire neither gold nor crystal can equal it nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold no mention shall be made of coral or quartz for the price of wisdom is above rubies and we'll see that quote in another verse later the topaz of ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. Then he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. Then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your good word which is certainly the source of our wisdom and knowledge and all that we need to live wisely in this world. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning open our eyes and ears and may your name be glorified both here in teaching and in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's turn to our text. In, uh, we left off at the, be- the end of chapter 7, um, or near the end. So Ecclesiastes 7, 23 through 25. We'll try to get all the way through chapter 8 today. Ecclesiastes seven twenty-three through 25. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Here we see Solomon return to his own story, displaying again his own brand of wisdom, the worldly kind. I'm going to begin and end with a couple of quotes from Bar- Cred Bartholomew. And we talked about it a little bit last week about what exactly is this type of wisdom that Solomon is employing? And why does he keep seeing vanity everywhere he looks? Bartholomew says at the end of chapter 7, it is an important crux for understanding Kohalet, the preacher's methods. He seeks to derive knowledge from observation, remember all of the I saw this, I saw that, and experience. Unfortunately, I did this and I did that. The sinful life he lived, as shown in chapter two, he validates his ideas in his mind experientially. Experiences the source and warrant of his knowledge. His concept of knowledge is created by thought, and you can imagine. Dependent on his perception. He is autonomous. This is the autonomy of individual reason. The belief that the individual can and, more importantly, should proceed toward truth by means of his own powers of perception and reason. And that he can in this way discover truths previously unknown. That is unlike traditional wisdom, as in his other book, Proverbs which is based upon traditional knowledge rather than one's experiences. Because of Solomon's sinful approach, Habel, vanity or mystery, is mostly all he understands. So, verse 23. All this I have proved by wisdom. The all this clearly refers back to the first 22 verses of chapter 7, which you'll remember was a run of those better than Proverbs Responding to the question in 612, who knows what is good for man in life?" but we cannot ignore that these three verses seven 23 through 25 are very similar, you'll remember from chapter one, 12 through eighteen and so the point here is that Solomon is looking back, taking in the whole scope of his journey over the last seven chapters. So, uh, 113, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. And here in 25, verse 25, I applied my heart to know and to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things. Back in 114, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Here in 23, all this that I saw. I'm adding those words, it's obvious, all this that I saw, I have proved by wisdom. Back in 116, I communed with my heart. Here in verse 25, I applied my heart. In 117, I have set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, but it was only a grasping of wind. First, the grasping of wind. Here in 23, I said I would be wise, but it was far from me. That's that idea of the wind being hard to grasp, impossible to grasp. But also this, uh, to know madness and folly is repeated here in verse 25, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon didn't prove anything by godly wisdom. He observed others and threw himself into sin and folly. His methodology was autonomous, that he was in control And it was not based on godly wisdom at all. Charles Bridges wrote Far better, as our first parents found too late, to know nothing of evil than to learn it experimentally. Far better would it have been for Solomon to have known foolishness and madness by observation, by the records of conscience, the Holy Spirit, by the testimony of the Word, the Bible than by the terrible personal experiment. And we've talked about how he must have had Genesis open, as he wrote. I've made yet another very busy table on the board about Genesis. I didn't want it to be a a distraction until later. Um, But clearly, he had the word of God open before him. We've seen all the connections to Genesis. So, uh, 726 through 28. And I found more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason. Which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So here in verse 26, this is the Proverbs woman. Not that one. <laughs> Not the Proverbs 31 woman. The Proverbs woman from 5, 1, and 6, the seductress. From 9, 13, and 18, uh, Craig Bartholomew calls her Dame Volley, uh, as opposed to Sister Wisdom. So here, this is the woman from Proverbs 5, who is as sharp as a two-edged sword. She seems to cut one way but cuts another. And here we see her employing the devices of the fowler for snaring birds. But godly wisdom lets one perceive those snares and nets and fetters. Greg Bartholomew takes 726 as a warning, not just from sensual sin, but from all folly, all sin. And Solomon in verses 26 and 28 also is relating how difficult, as we saw in Job, how difficult it is to find wisdom. Not why it is difficult. Not yet. That's in verse 29. In verse 27, now as, as an aside, I know I spent a good bit of time on, on this in the introduction. Um, it doesn't much matter, but this verse is... That the one that we touched on in the introduction, where the narrator's voice, if you see one, a frame narrative, the narrator at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes and the narrator appearing again at the end of Ecclesiastes, we see him poke through here um, in the uh, third person in verse 27. I'm not really convinced that it's a frame narrative at all and this can't just be the entire words of Solomon throughout But here in verse 27, we see Solomon still trying to make his search for meaning by wisdom work, or at least what he calls wisdom. The problem is that Solomon's methods have led him right into the arms of Dame Folly. His approach confronts him with the enigma of life, but offers no way out of its impasse. And in verse 28, we see the kinks and the gaps in creation, what God has made crooked, what God has made lacking due to our sin, due to his, his curse because of our sin. And here is a gap. Michael Eaton says that emphasis here is not on what Solomon found, but on what he found lacking. In other words, wisdom is rare among all humans, no matter what what sex. In Proverbs 31.10, so we'll turn to that woman, who can find a virtuous wife? And here's the rubies again, for her worth is far above rubies. We want to find her. We know how valuable she is. The exact opposite of, of the seductress or dame folly. So who can find her? She is rare. Greg Bartholomew says that in Proverbs, wisdom calls out in the public spaces, offering wisdom to any who respond. But for all his seeking, Solomon is unable to find her. So the reader is led to ask, if Lady Wisdom offers herself freely then why does he wind up in the arms of Dame Folly? Where has he gone wrong? What sin, such as in verse 26, is he guilty of? That has resulted in being seized by her. Verse 29 gives an important clue. Imagine I'll go back towards the end and just review everything when we finish with Ecclesiastes. But boy, this one's got to be at the top of the list. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So here we see the sum total of Solomon's investigation. Both his kinked and crooked observations of life under the sun And the wicked experiences, a wide gap removed from lawful obedience to God. Nine verses earlier in 720, we read, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And I showed you how in Romans 3.10 that verse is cited. But here Solomon seems to set the record straight. He doesn't blame God for our sin. When God created the world and pronounced it good, he spoke truth. Same when he created man and woman. Man was not made wicked, man was not made neutral. Everybody likes to be neutral. Man was made upright. It is they who sought out first one scheme and then another, compounding wickednesses. Charles Bridges says, Man's first invention or scheme was his discontent with the happiness God provided him. All sin is only a form of self-love instead of love of God. The many inventions take the throne in turn. Isn't this true? Former vanities soon produce the weariness of disappointment. Others step into their places so that this usurped dominion is changed only, not subdued. Here we see plainly why the second wisest person in history could not find godly wisdom. His own brand of wisdom, as from the book of James, the earthly, sensual, and demonic kind is exposed as folly. As Craig Bartholomew puts it, it is folly because it seeks truth about the world apart from God. It is sinful in its inherent idolatry. Human existence is alone and has to be held in trust. Autonomy always assumes some neutral capacity within humankind by means of which truth can be deprived apart from God. So when when Solomon constantly from the very first verses, complains about the kinks and gaps in creation, such as the Cain and Abel problem, seen most recently in 7.15. Namely, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Solomon was forgetting that all that sin, all his sin, made him worthy of damnation, both now and in eternity. So why was he spending all of his time trying to tally up all the good people and all the wicked people? Adam and Eve and everyone since schemed for autonomy to govern themselves. This is a denial of creatureliness, and an attempt to play creator or governor by asserting our autonomy, taking that which belongs to God and robbing him. We see that in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the building of the Tower of Babel, the pride, and the days of the flood. So Solomon's own sinful life, his investigations, and his observations, his experimentations, Confirmed his own folly and he seems to finally see that but it's only a question with five chapters left where he's going to go from there where does any sinner go when they realize their need for a savior so let's turn to chapter 8 this verse is a good conclusion to the prior section Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A wise man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. So to know the interpretation of a thing is what godly wisdom and biblical wisdom literature is all about. How to act, when to act, how to live, in the world. Where, Solomon asks, is the wise person who can walk through the minefield of all the problems, the kinks and the gaps that he has observed and experienced under the sun. More importantly, where is the wise person that when they hit a landmine will ascribe it to God, their loving Heavenly Father, and keep on moving? The idea of the face shining is the witness of Christ in the world, isn't it? Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. I think that starts with a gentle heart. That should show in a gentle countenance. 2 through 4, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. For he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? <clears throat> so when he says, I say, that's, that's King Solomon talking. The king is saying to keep the king's commandment. And the immediate reason he gives is for the sake of our oath to God. So question for you. Do you recall what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6? We handled it upstairs in worship. It told us when you make a vow to God, the king, to do what? To keep it? That's right. And how fast should you keep it? Yeah, do not delay to pay it. That could be instructive uh, for how to approach a king as well. In fact, back then, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And in, in, in 5, right after that, 5-4, because God has no pleasure in fools. You can see that relates this to godly wisdom. Turn to Proverbs 8. Right at the beginning, 8, 1 through 4. Does not wisdom cry out and understand? Remember Job we started with. Where is it? Where is the place of wisdom? Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. 15 and 16 before I turn away. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Proverbs 8 goes on to make it clear that wisdom beautifully depicted there refers to Christ himself, as in 1830. Then I was beside him, beside God, as a master craftsman. And we know that all things were made through him the word. From John 1.3, Solomon is equating our duty to the king to our duty to God. In Romans 13, Paul tells us to be subject to the governing authorities because all authority comes from God and the governing authorities are appointed by God with one purpose, being to serve as God's minister for justice against evil. So since God is the source of authority, Our oath of allegiance and obedience to King Christ compels us to submit to earthly kings as well. But with a caution, Charles Bridges says, Yet no earthly sovereign can claim the right of absolute obedience. The service of man is subordinated to the supreme claims of the service of God. We talked a little bit about previously, what do you do when the oppressor comes in and assaults your family? Well, I don't have to tell you what to do, uh, but at what point, does, uh, what point does rebellion become a Christian duty um, if apparently such oppression is going to keep on going? Next week, it'll be my neighbor next door. I think contentment calls that we never rebel for ourselves. As Christ did not but to rebel for a neighbor I will leave to you verses 3 and 4 do not be hasty to go from his presence do not take your stand for an evil thing for he does whatever pleases him where the word of a king is there is power who may say to him what are you doing So this deals with how to act in the presence of the ruler. So let's rewind again to chapter 5, when he went in to the presence of God. How did Solomon go to the house of God, the king? How did he walk? He walked prudently. With wisdom, obviously. Drawing near to hear, remember, rather than to speak rashly. And there Solomon likened being hasty in speech or having many words to giving the sacrifice of fools. So likewise, in the presence of God's appointed governing minister, we should walk prudently and draw near first to listen and not be rash in our speech. Nor, it says, should we hastily leave the king's president, presence in, in disrespect or insolence. So I don't know. Don't storm out of the county commission meeting. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have to get carried away with the specifics. But it's a little muddy when you live in a republic of we the people, or I imagine more so a true democracy where the people are the collective ruler and the majority gets their way. So I'll I'll ask you if we could have a brief discussion. Any ideas in mo- in modern day? How could this idea of respect to governing authorities apply to us? Go ahead, John. I think it's it first is incumbent upon all of us to understand our place. God God requires certain things of certain people according to their place. And so what is our place? We are are each in different places in relation to the authorities. Maybe we have a closer relationship. Maybe we are um, serving the authorities in some way and have some, some voice or some responsibility. Maybe we are disconnected, but... I think it starts there at least. I don't, I don't have an answer, but I think it starts there. What, right. what is my responsibility? Uh, where am I? What authority do I have that may be flowing from um, not only not only the, you know, the, the civil authorities, but from God? Um, and how do those relate? I think we each need to know our place. Right. Right. Sure. The, the idea of being subordinated, right there in the Ten Commandments. Right. Anybody else? Uh, one more time, Jen? We definitely need to pray for those. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Pray for those in, in authority. Uh, go ahead. Um, like if you do provide it to the king's table, don't come hungry. Okay. Just don't presume you know, you're left, You might be put, by at the end of the table, probably against the table. Sure. Um, not, not being meek and, and humble and not presuming yes not presuming your position that's right that's right mm-hmm. that my, i i put it as how how should we honor but um the the negative side of that coin is certainly um you know are they acting biblically are they calling for us to act unbiblically I would only add um, we should be careful with our speech and that's going to be tied out of the abundance of the heart the mouth mouth speaks it's going to be tied into the heart Um, let's not forget that everyone is in the image of God well the basic principles remain for all time I think in dealing with government Christians must exercise and exude self-control So in the ruler's presence or behind his back, do no evil thing. Be prepared to stand and accept the consequences if you do. Because, as he states, God's ministers, kings, they will do as they please. So 5 through 7. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? There's a lot of references, as we've seen, to time in Ecclesiastes. After all, Solomon's under the sun is less about being here on planet Earth than it is about now. We are now under the sun as opposed to eternity. We should finish Ecclesiastes in about a month, and I'll have a chance to teach a one-off in Sunday school. And I think I will kind of plow through this book again. uh, Vern Poitras, Chance and the Sovereignty of God. It might be a good discussion to present um, for that that one. I I don't know. I've never done a whole book in one class before, so we'll see exactly what I want to do there. But... um, These four verses here, that's obviously not four verses anyway, uh, three verses, they continue to reflect on acting prudently in the presence of the king and how to walk outside of his presence. Keeping the king's command will keep you on the right side of his sword, uh, unless, of of course, it's an ungodly command. And then you know which side to be on. But what is this about a wise man's discerning both time and judgment? It's almost as if in verse 6, we can add another stanza to the poem, beginning in 3.1. You remember, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. Verse 6, I wonder if the new stanza would be a time for every matter and a time for wise judgment. We see in 8.6 that a reminder of God's sovereignty in every, ma- in every matter that comes to pass. But we work in this world now under the sun and must exercise right judgment. The wise man will be alert to God's timing and procedure. Esther, she knew what to do. And she knew the chance she was taking by appearing before the king. Esther 4 Four, Fourteen through sixteen. This is Mordecai speaking. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You see, Esther walked prudently in coming into the presence of the king. And you might ask, what do you mean prudently? She's about to break the law. But the prudence was seen in how she prepared, walking prudently as she entered, entered his house. She fasted to God. She called others to fast. She, no doubt in her prayers, she knew that God was her true king and deliverance for the Jews could only come through him. It was God who turned the heart of King Xerxes who allowed Esther to find favor, not for anything in Esther or how beautiful she was, other than walking with godly wisdom. So the king extended her the golden scepter instead of the sword. Also in exile, I was going to have us turn there, but we're a little tight here. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. Chapter 1 related his mourning and prayers over the report he had heard about the broken down city of Jerusalem and the, and the sorry state of the survivors. How does it end? Chapter 1. A word of hope. Just out of nowhere. For I was the king's cupbearer. In Nehemiah 2, 1-5. through 5, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why would my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah knew what he was doing. I've often thought he he let himself slip. He had a weak moment. He let his countenance fall. But this isn't just us as Christians. I don't mean to use the word just. It's a sin. This isn't us as Christians letting our countenance fall, letting stress and anxiety or anger show on our faces. This was Nehemiah's deliberate choice. So let me ask why was he dreadfully afraid? I think it's related to his job. Think if you were the king's cupbearer the wine and food taster, to prevent assassination. And you came into the king's presence with an anxious look in your eye. You wouldn't have a job anymore. And you might not have a head either. Remember our new stanza from chapter 3 to the poem there. As with Queen Esther's for such a time as this, Nehemiah knew there was a time appointed for these matters by God and a time for him to exercise godly, wise judgment. This is how to know to know, and to act upon the proper time and procedures. That is what biblical wisdom literature is for. That is what godly wisdom is for. Like Francis Schaeffer's, how should we then live? Verse 8, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Michael Eaton says here in verse 8 that there are four limitations given on human kingly authority over death. First, no prison can be found which will hold the spirit, the inner life of a man, with its longings, impulses, and convictions. In verse 8, it should also take us back to that poem on times and seasons. Because no one has has power over the day of death, a time to be born, right, and a time to die, as appointed by God, not by earthly kings. They may kill in God's name, As as a minister of justice against evil, but that's also in God's time, not theirs. Likewise, there's no release from war once the battle commences. And fourthly, wickedness will not deliver its owner from death. In verse 9, All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. This verse bridges these two sections. All this I have seen looks back at the prior section and reminds us of his methodology in studying earthly kings, trying to gain knowledge by observation, and we know from chapter 2 by his sinful experience. He reminds us that his studies encompass every work that is done under the sun. It's thorough, and again, he's applying his heart. That denotes that he is all in. It consumes him personally. 8.9b, Solomon speaks of another time or season, a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Craig Bartholomew says that Solomon is concerned, well, he says Kohelet, because he doesn't believe it's Solomon that wrote it, but anyway, Kohalet is uh, concerned here that absolute unaccountable power of the monarch leads almost inevitably to corruption and oppression as his subjects acquiesce even to their own hurt. But Charles Bridges takes it a step further. In the context of all the oppression Solomon observed, when rule is perverted from its legitimate end, it hurts the ruled and the ruler. And I think that's a very astute observation speaks of how sin affects the sinner as well. All right, 10 through 11. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Here we see that sinners all die. But Solomon is exercised that he sees more injustice. The sinners are honored with burial, though they behave wickedly, even while going into the temple as hypocrites, going in and out of it. You would think Solomon would be pleased that the sinners were forgotten in Jerusalem, where they had done their crimes. But there's a likely sense of his being displeased, That any source of their dishonor, their evil deeds, is what was forgotten. And those evil deeds will no longer be attached to their name. In verse 11, Solomon laments the lack of apparent temporal judgment here in time of these wicked. There's a time for God's justice and judgment. But when will it come? And you, you sense that Solomon is wondering if it ever will. In the meanwhile, the canes of the world lend themselves to more and more evil because they get the extended years, they get the prosperity, they get the many children that they can teach to be even more wicked than they were. Psalm 10.13 kind of reflects this idea of what happens when there's not a speedy punishment. Why do the wicked renounce God? He's said in his heart, you will not require an account. Well, this is going to be really tight. Um, so it's really busy don't worry about it I thought about not even doing it just one more table from Russell Meek's book that um, let's see verse 11 this uh, I don't have time to look it up but 9-3 is very similar Uh, 11 because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil and 9.3, 9.3, truly the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. You'll recall back in the flood narrative, which is what the two Genesis verses are, six five and 8.21. Again, this is Solomon with Genesis open right in front of him. The heart, ready to do evil, consumed completely. You'll remember from the flood narrative, I regret I don't have time to read those verses, but you can if you wish. Um, very similar, I mean exact same terms. Um, it's not here in 8.11, but this under the sun, the on earth from Genesis 6.5 line up. Um, and of course, the overall theme dealing with the complete and total evilness of the human heart. All right, that wasn't too bad. Um, 12 to 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear God. Now this is Solomon confessing what his heart believes. Forget what he said, forget forget what he thinks he saw. He knows what he saw, injustice, oppression, and delayed judgment. A reversal of the character consequence thing. uh, that, That a righteous life begets blessings. He's not reporting here. Notice, I saw, but I know. In other words, I have faith. And we see him using the word fear twice to magnify the importance as the believer comes before God. He walks prudently. Charles Bridges says, yet I surely know the verdict is decided. I know that it shall not be well. The judgment is decided. 14 through 15. There's a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. So again, here in 14, after just giving that beautiful confession, with a verse very similar to 7.15, we see Solomon still pronouncing Hebel, vanity or enigma, when he again sees the character consequence structure overturned. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. And see how it begins and ends with Hebel, vanity. Beginning and end of that verse, Solomon is still disquieted. The journey still goes on. But Solomon in verse 15 immediately answers this with the fifth of seven carpe diem verses in Ecclesiastes. Carpe diem, seize the day, enjoy the life and the blessings that God has given us because that is his command. Michael Eaton says, if the problem restated in verse 14 is the reversal of retribution and reward, then the remedy recalled in verse 15 is a practical solution. Joy and contentment are to be our encouragement. And the secret of it all is that they are the gift of God. I would add, <clears throat> if God is still governing and giving good gifts to his children with a view to future hope, then he's not stopped governing his creation. And the wicked can expect justice and judgment. will take you a little bit late here, but we'll finish the last two verses. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth even though one sees no sleep day or night. Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. All of his studying, we're returning to his methodology, all of his studying, all of his experiencing life and even sin, with the tossing and turning that it caused him at all hours, cannot fully discover God's ways. Remember Romans 11.33? Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I'm going to do what I did last week and end with another lengthy Bartholomew quote because it really breaks down again how we started today. The problem with Solomon's methodology. Verse 17 begins with him observing every work of God. He quotes another commentator. This verse is very important in understanding the whole book because it makes the action of God equivalent to the activity that he can see carried on, that Solomon can see carried on under the sun. What is especially meant is all human activity. This then is at the same time always divine activity, And that's all the divine activity, in other words. Yet precisely in this dimension, it is impenetrable for humans. Above all, when we ask about the all of divine activity. What Kohelet can observe is equated with every work of God. As will become apparent later in his journey, there are works of God, such as creation and redemption, to which his autonomous methodology can never do justice. But they are crucial to resolving the enigmas and the vanities he keeps encountering. There is hubris in his methodology when it leads him to think that he has observed every work of God. Hubris because it's arrogant to imagine that the works of God are, to conf- are confined to what he can observe. His methodology is limited because his understanding of his methodology can never take into account God's works, especially that of redemption. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, this is where our mind goes often daily, setting up our own methodologies, our own way of understanding what has happened to us, what is happening, why life is difficult, Father, you've called us to walk in this world. And like Job and Solomon, we cry out for wisdom. We can hear her crying to us. Help us, Lord, give us feet to run to her, to not be swift in running to mischief, but swift in running to your son, Christ. For his role is wisdom in creating this very beautiful world, this creation. God, it is cursed for our own sin and that of our fathers. God, help us to go prudently into worship now, walking wisely, looking to serve you with all that you've given us through your Holy Spirit. Keep sin far from us. In Jesus' name, amen.